Yeah, it's uh, really been really good to be here this week. Um, my family is also here. Uh, they got here on Wednesday, Thursday night, and so we've been able to enjoy this really lovely town this last week, uh, this weekend. And um, so today is the last day of my residency, and I have a lot to share. I'll just tell you that I have a lot to share. Um, what I want to do is I want to talk about identity. I want to talk about sexual identity, and I want to talk about how moralism around sex and sexuality doesn't really work. That's what I want to do today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this church and the way that uh, you've been transforming it from the inside out, and thank you for this new beautiful space. And we pray that, uh, that Lord Jesus, that you would reign over Los Gatos, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done in this place as it is in heaven. And I pray that you would give me the words, the exact words to speak today. Fill me with your spirit. Communicate to us your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that there are um, different ways to communicate for change. And um, when I heard this a while back ago, it's actually really stuck with me. Uh, If you're communicating for change, you can work on um, actions, You can work on attitudes, or you can work on atmosphere. Actions, attitude, atmosphere. Now, actions, this is when, and this is really important communication, by the way. Actions is when you're like usually like showing literacy rates or you're showing youth pregnancy rates, and you're wanting to shift people's action towards either giving to something or someone's action towards something, like to get people to do something. So you're showing a lot of stats. You're, you're, you're working on people's like minds to go like, do something, get out there and do something. Let's build a well. Let's, let's reach this unreached people group. Let's do something. You're, you're communicating for action, and that's really important. Also, there's a way to communicate for attitude, and this is, this is, um, deals with emotions. This is like, gets you aroused, like your anger aroused, or your excitement, you're like excited about something. This is what basically every single Super Bowl commercial will do today. Like, it works on your attitude, like, I want that, why do I want that car all of a sudden? That sort of thing works on your attitude. But there's also a way of communicating that works on the atmosphere. Now, with the atmosphere, it takes time to think deeply about what is communicated for there to be a shift in attitude and then ultimately a shift in action, but it doesn't really control the action. It doesn't even really control the attitude that much. It moves the atmosphere so the attitude can eventually be shifted and then the actions can eventually be shifted. Now this series hasn't been aimed at your action necessarily, which I think is maybe frustrating for a few of you. You're like, if we're teaching around sexuality, just tell me what to do. What do I do, what do I say? Now, traditionally, this is how pastors have talked about sex. Don't do this, don't do that. And it really typically doesn't work. It doesn't work because it doesn't work on the imagination and doesn't give people a deeper vision, a Christian vision around sexuality. What we've been trying to do in this series is shift the atmosphere, to work on your vision and your imagination as it pertains to sexuality. Now this kind of series, I will admit, is harder to know exactly what to do. What do I do with this? But that will take thinking deeply about this. It will take discussing and processing like you'll be doing in your midweek um, courses. As a follower of Jesus, I think we need to think deeply about human sexuality. The sad reality is we're losing the story around this topic to the culture. We've been so busy doing the whole don't do this and don't do that that we have lost the narrative. And I've had to personally think deeply about this myself. In 2010, 
I, with a group of other people, started a church in San Francisco called Reality. We're right in the middle of San Francisco, not only right in the middle of San Francisco, we started our church in the Castro District, if you know anything about San Francisco. Like right on Market Street, right in the middle of the Castro. And we witnessed a lot of amazing things. People who moved to San Francisco to get away from God and to get away from traditional conservative culture met Jesus at our church. People were falling in love with Jesus. It was quite incredible until we had to do four services on a Sunday morning, and that was not incredible at all because it's exhausting. But people were getting like pumped on Jesus, and I was, I was really stoked. I was like thankful. But huge shock. People in the church were still sinning, like a lot, like a lot of sin still happening in the church. Now, there was a lot of our community that were young in the faith or that were so damaged by moralistic Christianity that they didn't really know how to live the Christian life now. And two years into the church, I had a a decision to make. How would I teach our church morality, ethics, and Christian living? without sounding like what they expected every church to sound like. Because every single church sounds like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stop drinking this. Stop touching that. And if I did that, they would feel completely duped. You're like, "You, you, you made this church sound like we were just following Jesus, but now you're adding all these moralistic rules to the church. So I remember thinking, really having to wrestle with this question. And I remember going to the letters written to the New Testament churches. I spent time reading the letters to the Corinthians the, ch- the letters to the church in Rome, in Ephesus, Philippi, and then I, and I got to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, and then something clicked for me. Right around Colossians 2, leading into chapter 3, something clicked, and it was revolutionary. It's not, in this, not revolutionary in the sense it's never been said. It was revolutionary in the sense it made sense to me, and it made sense to me to a point where I'm like, I have to teach this to the congregation. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 20. Colossians 2.20. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, and the words are on the screen as well. It says this, Paul writing to the church in Colossae, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I remember like really studying this and going, oh my gosh, literally what I'm trying to do is restrain sensual indulgence. Paul's writing to this church in Colossae who's dealing with some false teachings surrounding the church. Paul, like he often does, writes to this young church addressing this false teaching. He calls it later in the letter a philosophy that was going around in the church. And this philosophy was an approach to the religious and the spiritual life of the congregation. It was an approach that basically said in order to come into the fullness or maturity or full experience of the life of God, you had to add all of these rules, restrictions, and regulations to your life. You had to stop doing this, and you have to stop doing that. That was the message flying around. Now, this is important. Right before moving into chapter 3 on, the Christ, on Christian sanctification, which we'll get to in a second, which, if you don't know what Christian sanctification is, is the process of being made more and more like Jesus, 
Paul says that adding all these external rules to Christianity, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, does nothing for restraining sensual indulgence. Why? Look at verse 23. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. See, parents, like pastors, are obsessed with trying to restrain sensual and sexual indulgence. And how do we do that most of the time? How do pastors do it? How do parents do it? We do it with rules. Okay, don't do this and stop doing that. Paul is saying that these regulations as the core motivation of regulating the Christian life are a waste of time. If this is your core motivation in the Christian life, it's a waste of time. It's actually the way a cult would do Christianity, not the real Christian life. I mean, the very things pastors and leaders and parents are, want to accomplish in their people, sanctification, holiness, do not happen by just regulating the life by saying, stop that, don't eat that, don't drink that. Ultimately, it does not work. Because these things speak to the actions, they don't speak to the heart. They try to create a purity cocoon, which we know because of the internet, let alone what people teach, what they teach in schools, and what they pick up from culture, do anything to create a purity cocoon. It's almost impossible to create a purity cocoon in California, let alone the Bay Area. But Paul is saying that they don't work. And even if they did work, they wouldn't work. The whole do not taste, do not touch, do not drink, if it did work, it wouldn't work because it would puff you up with pride. People who know how to regulate their life by rules become self-righteous and legalistic. Legalism does not produce love. It produces a kind of hate. You end up hating other people because they cannot live up to your standards, or you hate yourself because you can't live up to your standards. And eventually you end up hating God like the Pharisees did and reject Jesus. If you do know how to live your life with the rules and regulations, you either are puffed up or you beat yourself up. But there is a better way. There is a better way. When we talk about sexuality, when we talk about sensuality, there is a better way for the Christian life. And so Paul says it in chapter 3. Follow along with me. Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life? If you write in your Bible, please underline that. Who is your life appears. Then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator. Now, what is Paul getting at here? You're like, those sound like lists to me. Wait, this is really important. There is a better way. Paul says there is a better way to live the Christian life than just don't do this and don't do that. And I believe this better way is the thrust of the New Testament. It's the thrust of Jesus' teachings. It is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. 
It is the impulse of the letters to all the churches on what Paul, how Paul is trying to bring people into sanctification. And it's a simple statement. And it's this. Be who you are. Be who you are. This is what Paul is telling every Christian in every letter. This is what Jesus is getting after when he says things like, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Be who you are. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't hide your light because you are light. You are salt. Henry Nouwen, who is one of my heroes, I actually wrote this quote I'm about to share with you. I wrote a whole book on this quote. Just this one quote I wrote a whole book on. I even named my son after Henry Nouwen. His name is Nouwen, my son, um, because he is a hero of mine. He wrote this in his book, Life of the Beloved. He wrote, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with a call to become who we are. Become who we are. Now, how can he say that? See, what the Colossians don't yet realize, and what a lot of followers of Jesus today don't realize, is that the fulfillment of all their hopes has already come in Christ. We have received everything we need in Christ. You are loved by God, accepted by God, put in right relationship with God, not by your own doing, not because you have the right family, not because you have the right education, not because you have the right desires or attractions, not because you have the right job, but because of the sacrificial, atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. If you have placed your trust in Christ, you belong to God. Now, our call, according to Paul in Colossians 3 and Henry Nouwen, is to become who you are, to live out of that truth, to live as if it was the most true about you, that the truest thing about you is that your belovedness and everything is reordered under your identity in Christ, and you live out of that truth. Nouwen goes on to explain this. He says, being the beloved expresses the core truth of our existence, Though the experience of being beloved has never been completely absent from my life, I never claimed it as my core truth. I kept running around it in large and small circles, always looking for someone or something able to convince me of my belovedness. I kept refusing to hear the voice that speaks from the very depth of my being that says, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. A quote from the Father to Jesus in his baptism. That voice has always been there, but it seems that I, much more, I was much more eager to listen to other louder voices saying, prove that you are worth something. Do something relevant, spectacular or powerful. Then you will earn the love you so desire. What Nowen is saying is that this core truth that he speaks about is actually today what we call an identity. All of us have an identity. All of us live out of some sort of identity, some sort of thing that, that's like the, at the core truth of who we are. Now, traditionally, identity comes from what is identical about you in every situation. Identity, identical. By that definition, we can see how finding and discovering identity is so hard. This is what actually breeds all the anxiety in our world today, because it's up to you to find out who you are, and that is so scary, because I can be anything. Anything? I could be anything. That is, that, that, those options are unlimited. Therefore, it breeds anxiety. Am I who I'm supposed to be? What's at my unchangeable core? Where do you find your identity? In other words, your identity is the truest thing about you. 
Now, no matter what crowd you're in, no matter how you feel, no matter where you're at, your identity is like the stable core of who you are. Now, typically, traditionally, we found identity in three, in three places. One of them is very modern. The other two are very traditional. We have found an identity by what we do, what we have, and the new one is what we desire. I am what I do, I am what I have, I am what I desire. A lot of us think that we are, this is, this is traditional, I am what I do and what I do well. This is so traditional, in fact, this is, used to be how people got last names. Miller, what do you do? I'm a Miller. Baker, what do you do? Guess, right? That's who I am. That's my identity. And my father was that, and his father, his grandfather, and for, for, all the way down, that's who I am. Now, if you watch, if you trace Disney movies over the last, like, you know, 40 years or whatever, you'll see that uh, this is what Disney movies try to get at. Like, you were something from your family, you can break free from that now. You could become your own thing now. But we traditionally, we still do this, though. We find our identity by what we do. This is huge in Silicon Valley, the Bay Area. We are our career, our art, our skill, our discipline. We find meaning in the things that we do. And this makes a ton of sense because typically what we do takes up most of our time, takes most of our thought, takes up most of our life. And it's easy to find an identity here. I am what I do. What do you do? Well, I do this. And that's where we find an identity. We find a sense of security. Being a good mom or good dad or a good husband or a good wife or a good middle child, good Christian friend, a good worker, I work in tech, I work whatever. I am what I do and what I do well. But here's the problem. What happens when you lose your job or your creativity of your art goes through a dry spell and you can't create like you once did? What happens when you get injured in your sport or your kids don't turn out to reflect the perfect parent you think you are? Or what happens when you're not as good of a leader or a boss as you thought you were? What happens when you disappoint your parents or you don't act like a Christian good friend? The problem is many of us lose a sense of self. We lose our job and we don't know who we are anymore. Our kid doesn't turn out like the, the way we thought they were going to turn out and we don't know who we are. We gave 19 years of our lives of being a good parent and the whole thing's blowing up in our face and we don't know who we are anymore. There are feelings of self-condemnation and full-blown identity crisis because we've identified so much by what we do, but also we've identified by what we have. A lot of people find identity by what we have. This is like what we have, what we acquire. This could be our money, how much money we make, or the possessions we have acquired. This might be our good looks or our fashion sense or intelligence. I just have this. It was given to me by genetics, my family. I just look like this. And this is my beauty, and I, you base your entire life around your beauty, and you try to keep your beauty going for as long as it can, but when your beauty begins to fade, so do you. This might even be where, you, where we are bringing, like what we're bringing to the table as a Christian or a leader or pulling our relationship with God. This can also be our, like, our, our lot in life, our place in life. Example, we find our identity by being the person who grew up without a dad. Or we, were, we grew up in a, an abusive or broken home. Or we have some sort of disability or shortcoming, so we, we identify by, by, by what we have. And these things define us. We even build our entire lives on them. But at best, these things are unstable, and at worst, they are destructive. Here's a third one, though. This is one I think I want to drill down a little bit on, because this one is probably the most modern, and the one that we have to probably understand the most if we're going to have conversations around sexuality. I am what I desire. I am what I want. 
I am how I feel. This is relatively new. Now, I think one of the strongest shifts in the area of identity has been taking place over the last generation in a shift towards a sexual identity. This is where people construct a whole identity based on who they're attracted to. I am what I desire. I am who I am sexually attracted to or how I feel sexually. I desire him, so then I must be fill in the blank. Or I desire her, then I must be fill in the blank. I desire both of them, I must be fill in the blank. And that becomes your identity. Stamp, that's your new identity. It's like we're attracted to something or someone, and that desire, that attraction, that want, becomes, comes with a corresponding identity, and not just that, a corresponding community. Janelle Paris, the professor of anthropology at Messiah College in Pennsylvania, writes this in a, her wonderful book, The End of Sexual Identity. She says this, Sexual desire is now considered central to human identity, and self-expression is seen by many to be essential for healthy personhood. The fact that sex is so important and that sexual desire is seen as a central element of human identity is new. What we've done in our culture, and this is very new, is we've made sex and sexual identity everything. We have said, do you want to know what's the truest thing about you? Do you want to know something that's truer than your job and your family and your faith? It's who you want to have sex with. That is the truest thing about you. We have said, if you want to know who you are, look deep within. What do you want? What do you desire? That is your identity. New York Times article called In Search of the True Self by Joss Nob, the true self, he says, the true self is defined by this. The true self lies precisely in our suppressed urges and unacknowledged emotions. To find a moment when a person's true self comes out, one needs to look at the times when people are so drunk or overcome by passion that they are unable to suppress what is deep within them. This is why the whole world's turning to ayahuasca, by the way. The true self lies suppressed. How do you do that? You have to free it with drugs, hallucinogenics, microdosing something, and then your true self comes out. And this paradigm, your identity is found by looking deep within. The real you is a you that you keep hidden from, e- from others either because of fundamental culture or your parents or fear. Be free so you can be who you want to be. You are what you desire. Now, this is how you know who you are and how you can measure your worth in our culture today. You are either straight, lesbian, gay, bi, transgen- transgender, queer, questioning, fluid, and the list continues to build. If you are straight in the church or in the old order of culture, then you're relatively accepted in the church. If you're straight, you're like easy going, pretty easy. But if you're lesbian or gay or queer in the church these days, good luck. Many think that they are fundamentally rejected because of who they want to love. Because we've made, we've also made the church, what we've done too, we've, we've conspired with this lie, and we've also made who people want to love their entire identity. But think about it. Who says who you want to have sex with or who you want to love is your entire identity? Who says that? The culture says that. But what if that's a lie? And what if we're complicit in the lie in the church by believing that lie? Paris, Janelle Paris, uses a great illustration. I don't have uh, grocery bags, but let's let's imagine these are grocery bags. These are two grocery bags, okay? So she puts up two grocery bags in her classroom, two of them right here. And they're not labeled. There's, there's like number one, number two. And she has two grocery bags up. And they're all filled with all kinds of groceries. And she asked her class, which bag would you choose between these two bags? 
And her class is like, well, we can't make informed choice because we don't know what's in the bags. Why am I choosing one or the other? And she says, well, can, I, can you tell me which is good and which is bad? And they're like, no, because we need to know what's inside those bags to know what is good and what is bad. So she turns the bags around, and one bag is labeled homosexuality, and one is labeled heterosexuality, or one is labeled queer, and one is labeled straight. And she says, let's try again. Now, uh, let me break from the illustration really fast. For most people in the church, this would be all they need to make an informed decision on what is good and what is bad, which is to our shame. We would just go, oh, that's bad, that's good. But our students were a lot wiser than that. The students said, it's not that simple. There are good and bad elements in each, depending on the situation or the person. So the professor pressed, we'll try this. Based on their labels, can you tell me what's inside each What's inside, of, what's inside of these bags? What are the items in the bags based on their labels? And this is where the students got mad. They said, we don't know what is in the bag. How could we evaluate it by labels? She finally removes the groceries and the cans and boxes, which were, which were relabeled with all sorts of words like desire and fantasy and behaviors and relationships and memories and hopes and thoughts and health and marriage. And the, and the groceries were the exact same in each bag. And she says this, viewed from the sexual identity perspective, a Christian heterosexual may, have, may seem to have a godly sexuality. When their sexuality is unpacked, however, there may be important areas for healing or growth. The blanket statement that heterosexuality is good may even hinder this person from facing sexual struggles. On the flip side, in a conservative, in conservative Christian settings, or in conservative settings, a Christian homosexual may be written off as sinful or defective, though this person may have maturity and health in their sexuality that can actually benefit others. Sexuality is therefore better approached at the general level of humanity and the specific level of individuality without the mediating level of sexual identity, we should all carry identical bags labeled beloved, from which we unpack the unique elements of our sexual lives. I hope that really hits in this room. I hope that really hits in this room. Because I have known gay and lesbian people at my church that have a more mature sexuality than most of the heterosexual folks in the church. They have thought deeply they have thought about what it means to follow Jesus. They have thought about what it means to cement their identity under, under Jesus Christ, where heterosexuals just think, it's all good. I can fool around before I'm married. You know, I can do a little repentance, but it's all good because I'm in the Adam and Eve paradigm, and that's good. And what Janelle's saying is, no, that's actually, you can actually have a, a really horrible sexuality by, by just thinking that you're good because you're heterosexual in church. And this is to our shame. Again, I recommended last Sunday, or Wednesday, I forget when, um, I read David Bennett's book, who is um, a, a gay theologian who has uh, committed his life to celibacy. And even people, I meet people even in our church, he's a resident in our church, he's a pastor, he's a pastor on staff for, for a year in our church, and even people in our church, I get emails all the time, how can you have him be in our church? And it, it actually makes me, actually it first makes me mad, and then I get sad. But I, I get mad first, because that's usually the, the, the emotion that I have available to me. Um, 
quick, quickly is anger because of this. Because I think we label people and we're like, oh, you're this, you must be bad. And my point is this. I think the church has the hardest time speaking and dealing with a generation of people who are identifying by their sexuality, by their desires. We have a hard time dealing with this whole generation. We don't understand this generation of people. We get the identity that you are what you do or you are what you have, but when we get to the desire, we have a hard time. And I get this. But this is what needs to happen with all identities. Every single identity, whether it's uh, a gay identity, a queer identity, a venture capital identity, which is an identity, by the way, a rich Silicon Valley identity, a tech identity, whatever your identity is, every single identity needs to be submitted under Christ. Tim Keller, he writes in Gospel Christianity, this quote is so helpful, identity is a complex set of layers, for we are many things, heterosexual, same-sex attracted, queer, rich, poor, Mexican, white, male, female, a male, but a little bit more, that leans a little bit more feminine. We're female, but we tend to lean more masculine. We are many things. Our occupation, ethnic identity, etc., are all a part of who we are. That's who, a part of who you are, but we assign different values to these components, and thus Christian maturing is the process in which the most fundamental layer of our identity becomes our self-understanding as new creatures in Christ along with all of our privileges in him. What now one would call this is the beloved. What Paul would call this is in Christ. Your identity in Christ is the truest thing about you, and every other identity falls in line with that one identity. And so Paul says, be who you are. Understand your identity in Christ and let every single other identity fall in line underneath that. So back to Colossians 3. Paul writes in Colossians 3 that the follower of Jesus is one who has placed their faith in Christ. The Christian is given a brand new identity. Trusting in Christ by faith, following Jesus means you have a new identity. An identity not based on moving parts or emotions or conflicting desires or job opportunities or even merit or godliness, but a new identity. And what is this new identity? Paul says this, Christ is your life. Christ who is your life. But let me ask you a question. Is Christ your life? Now, don't answer out loud. Is Christ your life? Just think about that. Now, some people might get sad or maybe even feel condemned when you think about that. Or you might even get puffed up with pride because you did your devotionals this morning or something. You're like, today... I'm crushing it. I read the Bible this morning. It was cold, but I still woke up, and I read my Bible. Yes, Christ is my life. Today, I'm crushing it. But it, I'll tell you, it's a loaded question. I think every one of us would say, probably, if we were honest, we'd say, is Christ your life? We'd go, no, with a caveat. I want him to be my life. And if I asked you, why isn't Christ your life? You'd say, well, because I still sin. I still choose my own way. I still do what I want to do. I still don't pray enough. I still don't forgive certain people, etc. But this is not what Paul says in Colossians 3. And this is not what the New Testament proclaims. It doesn't say Christ is your life if you accomplish A and give away B 
and forgive C, it proclaims over you and I who are in Christ, Christ is your life fact. It's called an indicative in Scripture, and Colossians 3 is full of indicatives. You have been raised with Christ, for you died and your life is now hidden in Christ. Christ, who is your life? These are all indicatives. Now, an indicative versus an imperative are really important to understand in the Scriptures. An indicative is it, it's, it's, indic, it's something indicative about you, something indicated, declared. It's a fact, it's a truth. An indicative is a truth proclaimed over your life. An imperative is something that we are to do, a command. Now, when we read the Bible and we sit in church, what we always hear are the imperatives. We hear the commands. To those of you who are a bit liberal or non-religious or non-establishment types, you hate commands. You think it's a threat to your freedom. For those of you who are religious and love rules and regulations and guidelines, you love the commands. You love when people tell you what to do because it's a way you can chart your own progress. You're like, I want you to do this. You're like, I do that. I'm awesome. But both of these approaches are wrong because every single imperative, every single command in Scripture is based on an indicative. Every single imperative is based on an indicative. Every single command is based on a truth. And unless you understand and drive the truth deep into your heart, you will never understand the command. You'll never have the power to do the command. An old Scottish preacher named Sinclair Ferguson says, so often in our preaching, our indicatives, our truths are not strong enough, great enough, holy enough, or gracious enough to sustain the power of the imperatives, the commands. And so our teaching on holiness becomes a whip or a rod to beat our people's backs because we've looked at the New Testament and that's all we ourselves have seen. We've seen our own failure and we've seen the imperatives to holiness and we've lost sight of the great indicatives of the gospel that sustain those imperatives. It's the gospel indicatives that support and sustain the imperatives. We will collapse under the weight of the commands if we don't know who we are. Is Christ your life? That is... That question is not an imperative. It doesn't come with a checklist if it's true or not. It's an indicative. It is true about you by placing your faith and trust in Jesus. Christ is your life. Now become who you are. Live as if that is the truest thing about you. Submit every other identity, every other thing you are under that one true identity. This is why whenever you see a command in Scripture, I almost... I I almost challenge you to find a command in Scripture, and there will always be somewhere very close around there an important truth about who you are in Christ. So to come full circle, back to sex. Sexual morality, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You have this command to flee from sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. That's something to do. But right before that it says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are not your own, that you are bought with the price? You are bought with the price. You know what Paul's saying that? This is who you are. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is who you are. Therefore, because of who you are, live out of this truth. Be who you are. Flee sexual immorality. Even, this is even in the Old Testament. The, the Ten Commandments, the first thing the Ten Commandments starts with is, you used to be a slave in Egypt, but I freed you. Now live as free people. How do free people live? Here are ten ways free people live. 
Ten Commandments. There is indicative and imperative. Here's what's true about you. You are no longer slaves. Stop living like slaves people. Live in freedom. Here's ten ways free people live. This is all over the Bible, and this is how, if we're to redeem this conversation, we have to start pulling this back to our identity being in Christ. This is the most important thing to pull things, pull people back to, which is why you will not find your identity in what you do, but what has been done for you. You will not find an identity in what you have, but who has you, and you will not find your identity in what you desire, but who has desired you at infinite cost to himself. Would you stand with me and pray? Lord, that was a lot to get through in 40-ish minutes. And, but I pray what would settle in our hearts and our minds now would be this idea, this fact that we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, that identity sings over us, is over us, is the most potent and powerful thing over us than any other identity that we may try and claim. And I pray that for this congregation, that they would begin to operate and live out of who they are in Christ, and they would call others to do the same. And as they do, that we'd be so quick to learn and listen and hear people's experiences and stories and then allow, hold their hand and pull people to Jesus and who you are and what you've done for us. Pray the gospel would rule and reign in the hearts and the minds of this congregation. In Jesus' name.